morning. Hey, uh, glad that you're joining us today. You see the video. We have two things that we like to stress to people all the time. Uh, learning environments and community environments. A learning environment you just heard about, it's a class setting. You can dive deeper, uh, get more involved in God's word. A community environment working together as you're following after Jesus, working together with that learning environment would be our discipleship groups. And so we have a call-out meeting on May the 2nd during the third service. So you come to the service, you can go to that meeting if you're not in a discipleship group. There's no commitment you're making when you come to this meeting. You're simply able to listen to what our groups are all about, how to get plugged in. You can ask questions. Just learn more about, hey, what are discipleship groups at New Hope like? Why are they important? And how do I learn more, learn more about it? And you can do that uh, next Sunday. Is next Sunday, May 2nd? Someone help me out here. Yes. Okay. It all blends together. Uh, May 2nd, during third service, you can check that out. Two more things, and we'll get into the sermon this morning. One, uh, we have something to celebrate. You're not going to get to see it, but during third service, Jacob Thompson, Tad and Amanda Thompson's son, is being baptized into Christ, and we just want to celebrate that as a church. And so, yes, go ahead and celebrate that. I'm very excited. Uh, watching that take place is going to be really cool. In addition to that, uh, we also have a family that are not here this morning, uh, but they've been a part of our church for uh, multiple years and are going to be transitioning away from New Hope. Uh, Andy and Chelsea Hayward, their daughter Caroline, that's why they're not here this morning. Andy and Chelsea, many of you may know them. Uh, they've, they've made an impact in our church in a variety of ways. Andy came here after a season of difficulty in ministry and has uh, spent the last few years here as a part of our church family with Chelsea and uh, just got a call, and he's going to be a youth minister in northern Indiana, and we're excited, and they start next week. And uh, so if you know them, send them a message of encouragement, but if you don't know them, you can still pray for them. And so I'm going to ask you to pray over the Hayward family uh, this next week as they transition to a new ministry um, in northern Indiana. So let's pray together, and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you so much for all that you're doing in this place. It's incredible. Just very, really, really proud to be a part of a church that is so dedicated to people. And uh, whether it's celebrating new life in Christ, as we will with Jacob, or um, sending those out as you have called them into ministry, we just pray uh, that you'll continue to work in all of their lives, uh, that you'll continue to work in and through us. God, as we turn our attention and our affection to your word, we, we pray with great expectation and gratitude that you will speak to us. And we ask you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. A really long time ago, uh, there's this carpenter who uh, really leaned into his craft and became a master carpenter. And after doing that, his skills were much uh, desired. And so he got into the house building business, spent an entire career doing it, built incredible homes, was sought after all over the place. As he got to the end of his career, though, uh, felt tired like really worn out. Like many of you have experienced, if you put your whole life into a career, you get to the end of it and you're tired. And he got so tired, he decided, man, I'm done. I don't really want to do this anymore. I need to go ahead and retire and be finished. So he went to his boss who was underneath the owner of the company and said, hey, I'm worn out. I've given you guys everything I got. I've done the best I can and I'm done. I need, I want to retire. Well, this guy's like, hey, first of all, you're right. You're the best carpenter I've ever seen in my life. You've blessed our company in ways I can't even express to you. Uh, let me talk to the boss. He goes back to the boss, comes back and says, hey, we agree. We want you to have uh, retirement, but there's one more house we have on contract. And the boss really wants you to build it. You're the best carpenter we've got. If you could just finish out your career with this last house, that'd be incredible. He thinks to himself, you know, I need to retire. I need enough of a nest egg to build a little cottage to be able to retire. So that's okay. I'll do this. I'll build this house. Well, about a quarter of the way into building the house, he finds himself a little bit frustrated, resentful, lacking joy, not wanting to work anymore, wishing he would have just said no, and just wants to get the house built. And so he starts to cut corners. Instead of using the good wood, he uses particle board. 
Where copper pipes were needed, he's using plastic piping. Walls were put up. They weren't flush, but it got the job done. He finishes the house. He's done. Goes to his boss, says, man, I'm done. It's so good to be done. I want to retire. And the boss says, man, thank you. You are the best we've ever had, and we want to honor you. And here's a gift. Gives him an envelope. Goes in, opens up the envelope, and to his shock, it is the deed to the house that he had just built. (laughs) Right? Yeah, you get it. It sunk in real quick, didn't it? Day after day, this guy had the opportunity to build something beautiful and magnificent. Incredible. Every day he had that opportunity. He could have done that. But instead, he compromised. Instead of the chance of a lifetime, he began to build something that he begrudgingly with a lack of joy, with a lack of integrity, and that he was going to be stuck living in for the rest of his life. He had the chance. He didn't live up to it. Now, this happened in a long-ago place, in a faraway place, a long-ago time, because if it had happened in central Indiana, he'd have sold that miserable shack for $1.2 million the way the market is right now, right? Some of you are like, yeah, yeah, he would have. Look, the the carpenter in this story is pretty upset because all of this was self-inflicted on his life. He could have spent the rest of his life in a place that, that he had built, but instead he was careless, and now he's going to be stuck in a place that has no joy at all. Look, our character, our character is the house that we build. Every day, decision by decision, every choice we make, it matters. And we build it, one, every one of us, one day at a time, one choice at a time. We build it, every one of us, on purpose or by accident, for better or for worse. We build it every day how we spend our time, where we make our investments. We build our house with that character, the way that we love people or ignore people. And most of all, maybe by the way, we allow our mind to entertain different thoughts all the time. Every single one of us build it. And so when I build the house that is my life as I'm building it, making decisions day in and day out, when I decide to cut corners, when I compromise my integrity, when I build that house the way that I oftentimes do personally, just being transparent with you, And I begin to build that house each and every day with resentment or I let ego slip in or pettiness or self-interest. What I'm doing in that moment is I'm creating a future that I'm going to have to live in. With every one of those decisions, I'm I'm creating that future. And so my question for you as you're building your house is this, how's it going? Like, how's the building process going really? Each day, each moment, every decision. How's that process going? How's the house being built for you? Look, the biblical writers, when you read through your New Testament, they are keenly interested with what it looks like to have a life that is well-lived. They're fascinated with the Apostle Paul is. Even in the the book that we've been studying, 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul will speak of the importance of building a life that is well-lived, a life built with character. If you remember all the way back, we're going to be in chapter 10 this morning, but all the way back in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul speaks to this right away. He says these words, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what was built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss and yet be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Paul's primary, primary concern contextually is the church, right? That's who he's speaking to in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We together are the church, okay? The place where God's spirit dwells. The church is made up of people. Therefore, 
What we're building on affects each and every one of us. The life that we are personally building comes together with the life of what other people are building. And collectively, that's what the church is. And Paul says there's going to come a day when the materials that you're using to build, are they integrity? Are they character? Are they joy? Are they gentleness and kindness and self-control? Or are you cutting corners? Letting your ego slip in there, letting anger slip in there, resentment, frustration, laziness. Are we letting these things be the things that we're building our life on? Because when that happens, there's going to come a day when it's tested. The foundation, what you're building on, the materials that you've been using will be tested. And it's not just Paul that's fascinated with this. You can look through your entire Bible and God from from beginning to end is fascinated with the life that we live. He's constantly, he's keenly aware of how important it is that we build the right way so that our life can be a testament to his glory. I mean, Jesus, when he's done preaching the most famous sermon in all of history, when he's done with it, called the Sermon on the Mount, listen to the words that he uses when saying, hey, when you take what I've taught you and it becomes what you build your life with, this is why that's so important. I'm going to read to you from the message translation. Here's what he says, Matthew chapter 7. These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life, homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They're foundational words, words to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, you're like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit, but nothing moved that house. It was fixed to the rock. But if you just use these words in a Bible study and don't work them into your life, you're like a stupid carpenter who built his house on a sandy beach. When the storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. You see, you look through your Bible, what we build our life with it is very clear that it matters to God, which means every choice you make, every word that you speak, every interaction that you have, every circumstance you have to lead through matters to God because it contributes on top of the foundation of Jesus to the life that you're building. That's what Paul's concerned with when he's writing to the church at Corinth. He continually has to tell them why, because this church, these Christians got caught up in buying into the lie of building their life around finances, building their life around their reputation, their honor. And Paul has to remind them, hey, step back for a second and look, the problems that you're experiencing in your life, the reason they are is because you've been building with the wrong materials. You've been so focused on yourself. You've been so focused on what you want, what makes you comfortable. What you're building your life with is the reason you have the problems that you're experiencing in your life. So you get to a chapter like chapter nine, and he begins to say, hey, if you want to start building the right way, first of all, the first thing you need to know is what it is you're building for. Nobody just starts building. Everybody has a blueprint. Everybody has a goal in mind. Everybody can get a glimpse of the finished picture. And Paul gives them that. He gives them an instruction. Understand what you're building for. Contextually, before we get to chapter 10, look at chapter nine, verse 24. Paul says these words. Do you, you, do you not know That in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way then to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we, we build our life, live our life to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't build, and otherwise he'll say, I don't run like someone who's just running aimlessly. I know what I'm aiming for. I don't fight like a boxer just beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I'm done preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. You begin to build a life that honors God by knowing what it is that you're building. You got to know what you're aiming for. Paul says it is ultimately God's glory. So your life, everything that you're building should bring a whole lot of attention to him and not as much to you. 
I mean, when that house is done being built, it's like, look what God did. Look what God did in that person's life. Well, now you get into chapter 10 and the apostle Paul, he's going to be a little bit repetitive, all cards on the table. We've talked a lot about what we're going to talk about, but he also drops these little things in there in chapter 10 that really tell you, okay, how am I supposed to build my life that when I get to the end of my life, everybody can look at it and say, man, look what God did. How do I do that? He's going to give us a little bit of a hint. If you jump down to chapter 10, we're going to finish up chapter 10. David walked us through the first part last week. We're going to pick up in verse 23 today. Paul writes, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifices, then don't eat it both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm not referring to the, I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of someone, something that I thanked God for? Here's what he's saying. It's a little bit repetitive. If you remember in chapter eight, we talked about Paul saying, hey, you have all kinds of freedoms because of what Jesus has done for you, but your freedoms come second to the needs of other people. You don't exercise your freedom over and above what other people need. Now, I'm not going to give you a fourth sermon telling you that you can go eat meat, okay? All right, you understand it. Like, hey, you have freedoms, and your freedoms are second to the needs of other people. So when people say things like, well, I have freedom in Christ to go do that, that's not the right tone. That's not the right approach. It's not the right attitude. The Apostle Paul says, you look at what other people need first before exercising your freedom. Now, when it comes to you personally, eat the meat. If it's causing someone else to stumble, making them struggle a little bit, don't eat it. Put their needs over and above your own. But now Paul adds something else to it. And I love this because what he added to it changed my life forever. And I'm telling you that honestly. What he added to it, this, this phrase that he uses has influenced more of my decisions since I became a Christian than any other part of the Bible. And I don't say that lightly. As I've thought through different circumstances and situations as a follower of Jesus, I've struggled to make certain decisions. This is what Paul's speaking to. The whole meat eating thing is what we would call a morally gray area of the Bible. You have freedom. You can make certain choices. Which one do you make? right? Which one is it that you're going to choose to do? And he gives us a little bit of instruction on how to make those kind of choices. Like, all right, I'm left with a decision. I don't think God's mad at this. And I don't think God's mad at this. What do I do? And you've seen those kind of decisions in your life, right? You've walked through that before. The, the instruction he gives us comes in verse 23. Oftentimes when I, when I was in uh, a high school minister, when I was doing youth ministry, First uh, Corinthians 10, 23 became one of the most important things I used in, in helping young people make decisions that were already Christians. When I worked with college students, same thing. Like, hey, you want to talk through how to make these important decisions? We're going to 1 Corinthians 10, 23. These decisions that weren't already clear in scripture, where scripture didn't say yes or no, you're like, what do I do? With parents, uh, and as I've been in the role that I'm in now, more often than not in pastoral meetings, we're going to go to something like 1 Corinthians 10, 23, where Paul says, all things are permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And I love the way the NIV translated it. He says, not everything is constructive. Not everything is going to build the house that you know you should be building, even if you're allowed to do it. And so you've come up with these kind of decisions before, I'm sure, right? And, and in a church like this, this is one, right? If, I, if a college student, how often does a college student step back and say, I can go where I want to go. I mean, God's not going to be mad at me. Do I go to Purdue or do I go to IU, right? 
don't do it, right? You're like, I'll tell you, that's not morally gray. <laughs> I'll tell you, there's a lot of immorality in the statement you just made, right? Purdue or IU, what do I choose? The most popular one, when you're working with high school students that I came across, do I date or do I not? Work with college students, do I enter into this relationship? And so the question became, hey, I can't tell you yes or no. The Bible's not gonna tell me date or don't date, but what we can do is come back to what the Bible would say about wisdom and foolishness. And so in my conversations, it would be like, okay, it's not going to tell you yes or no, but what it is going to tell you is that all things are permissible. You could date or not date, and God's not going to be mad at you. But what's most beneficial? Well, beneficial to what? Beneficial to the life you're building, meaning beneficial when you get done with that life, look what God did, not look what someone else did. When you get done building that life, it's a life dedicated to the kingdom of God. And so the question you're asking in that moment, whenever you're making that decision, like I got to make a financial decision that's going to impact my family. What do I do? Well, the Bible doesn't say don't do it. What do I do in that moment? I got to make a decision on uh, all these different things. And I'm not sure what direction to go. I'm not sure what choice to make. I'm not sure what school I should go to, whether or not I should be in this relationship, whether or not I should make that financial decision. What do I do? You step back long enough and you say, okay, all things are permissible. I understand that. There's not an immoral choice that I'm going to make here, but what is most beneficial to the life that I've said I'm building? And more often than not, people want to make that choice apart from the life they said they were building. So a lot of the times when you're walking through this with people, you're having to remind them. You're having to step back and say, hey, hold on. Let's go back to the life you said you wanted to build, not the choice. We're going to pause that decision you have to make, and we're going to go and say, hey, you said this is the life you wanted to build. You said this is the house, if you will, that you're building. These are the materials that you were wanting to use. When that project is finished, what's that house going to look like? Okay, now let's go back over here and make this decision. That's what Paul is saying. Hey, yeah, look, when it comes to eating meat, sure, you can eat meat. It's yes or no. It, it's, it's morally neutral. What's most beneficial in this particular circumstance to you building the life that God has called you to build? Now Paul's going to go into a little more detail and give us even more as we walk through this. Verse 31, he says, So whether you eat or drink, whether it's IU or Purdue, okay, or whatever it is that you're going to do, do it for God's glory. Do all of it, every choice, every decision, every word you speak, every relationship that you have, every circumstance you find yourself in. Make sure that you're in that for God's glory and not for your own. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, from not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they might be saved. Again, God's glory is my ultimate goal here. And then he gives us this really great practical way to do it. He says this, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. He says, imitate me. And you're thinking, wait, hold on. Imitate you. Like, what do you mean? It's like, well, find someone in your life who's one or more steps ahead of you in the building process. They're building the same house that you know you should be building. They're using the right materials. I mean, that is someone with integrity. That's someone with character. That's someone with the right tone and approach. They've got gentleness and kindness and self-control. They're living for Jesus in a way that I know I should be living. There are a few steps ahead of me. I need to imitate what they're doing. And here's what's fascinating. This is not a one-time shot in the arm where Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. No, this is a theme throughout your New Testament. I mean, Paul said this already to, to, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. He said this, I exhort you then, be imitators of me. When he wrote to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 5, he said this, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators. Look at the way you're building and imitate after the way that it's been built before you. Hebrews, the, the writer of Hebrews said this, 
that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Those who have gone before you, those who are a few steps ahead of you. And it's not hard to see, right? You've, you've experienced this. Imitation comes pretty easy, pretty early on. So the question's not, should I imitate? The question should be, what or who am I imitating? You've seen this in your life. At least I have very clearly. Anyone with children will tell you that. Right now, my four-year-old doesn't struggle imitating things. And we've got a series of things, seasons we've walked through with him where he's imitated things. He's not, not too long ago, his thing was the garbage truck and garbage cans. Anyone who's been around our family, you're like, yeah, it is. That's Noah's thing. Why? Because Noah, my four-year-old, if you meet him, one of the first things he's going to ask you is this, what color is your garbage can? It's like, before we do this relationship thing, let's get down to business. Like, what color is the garbage can here? We're not going to get a lot farther if it's not the right color, right? Like, this is, when does the garbage man come to your house? Like, he wants to know so, like, he can finish at our house and come sit at your house and watch. That's his thing. He loves it. So he'll put a vest on, and he's, like, constantly, he has, like, little garbage cans. He's got garbage truck toys, and he's, like, he makes the route around the neighborhood. And, I mean, he loves it. He has no issue imitating. Uh, he went from that. Now he's, he's gone through a season where I, I get the privilege of working with the Whitestown Fire Department as a chaplain. So I've taken him with me a few times and he's seen the fire trucks and he gets so excited about that. Now he wants to imitate all the fire trucks. And so now it's, I want to dress up like a fireman. I want to put the fires out. And he'll say things like all throughout the house, like, okay, all the, and, and he just loves it. He starts imitating a firefighter. Most recently it's Bob the Builder. Curse you creator of Bob the Builder. <laughs> it's cost me more money and time, uh, but he loves it. And so just this past weekend, my uh, discipleship group came out here to the church and uh, we were all helping to build something for VBS. And Noah's like, I got my tools. And he's like, he comes out and he's like, I got to have a piece of wood. And he's not, I mean, he's just banging on wood, but he's like, I'm building it. I'm building. And he's just like, can we build it? Yes, we like, oh. <laughs> He gets so excited about it. He has no, now here's the, mo- here's the one that gets me the most. This is the most humbling one. Noah has no problem imitating me. That scares me. It's cute. And it's fun. He'll do things like he comes in and he's like, I need the keys to the, your car, my car, dad. I need my car. And he wants the keys to my vehicle. And he'll say this, no kidding. It's time for me to go study. And I'm like, am I, do I say that too much around here? Like, where are you? Why do you? It's like, I got to go get in the car. I'm, I'm going to study. And he'll go get in the car and he'll like, hey, what do you guys want from Dairy Queen? I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, you know, in our house, it's donuts, buddy. We don't do Dairy Queen. We do donuts. And so he's like, all right. So he pretends to get in the car and he drives and, you know, he'll put my shoes on and he'll grab my bag and pretend he's going places. And it's so cute and fun. But then you start to realize, uh oh, like, am I living the life I want him imitating? Like, really? Because I have a 13 year old, too. He's not, I mean, he does actually steal my shoes, but he doesn't put them on to show off anymore. He actually wears them. And it's like he's imitating things, too. And I'm like, am I living that life that is really the life I want him to imitate? How am I playing this out? How does this play out in my life? So I want to walk through just a few things that I've wrestled with. And these aren't me telling you. I'm not like the expert to tell you this is. But I do want to give you some things. Maybe in the next week you can wrestle with as you think through that. Am I living the life that other people should imitate? Am I pursuing people that are, I should imitate that are building the kind of lives that I know I should be building? Just three quick things. The first one is this. Following the example of Jesus creating a life that honors him. It's about learning to invite God into the everyday moments of your life. I mean, every moment. So you want to know who should I be pursuing? 
Who should I imitate who's a few steps ahead of me? And, and what kind of life should I be living that other people can imitate in my everyday walk? What kind of life should I be building? The first thing that I would say is find the person who you look at and you're like, man, they invite God into everything they do. Every moment that person's inviting God into every conversation. They're talking about him all the time. Like they really know him. They're inviting him into everything that they're doing. That's vitally important to any life that you want to live, any life that you want to build that's going to honor God. There's a story in your Old Testament of a young Moses before he became a follower of God. And he comes across an Egyptian who is beating and mistreating an Israelite, ultimately kills that Israelite. And in Exodus chapter 2, verse 12, it says this. It says that Moses looked this way and Moses looked that way. And seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and buried his body in the sand. It's a very encouraging verse. <laughs> it says he looked this way and then he looked this way and he saw no one. Which way did Moses not look? He didn't look up. And had he looked up, had he invited God into that moment, it would have played out a lot different. Look, I can promise you in the circumstances you find yourself in, no matter how much your coworker drives you nuts, no matter how much your neighbor is frustrating you or annoying you, I promise you, if you were to pray and ask God to come into that moment, the answer that will come from God, the answer that you're going to get after that prayer will not be kill them and hide their body in the sand. It's just not what he's going to say. He will not say that to you. Look, following Jesus is about inviting him into the everyday moments of your life because you come to understand this. If I'm going to build that life, I'm not building a life for God. I'm building a life with him. And there's a big difference. There's a big difference. I'm just building this for you, God, instead of I'm building this with you, God. Join me in this. The second thing is this. Following the example of Jesus is about leading and following. I mean, it's a clear expectation here that uh, Paul tells the church at Corinth, you need to follow my example. You need to find someone building like you're building so that you can follow. But it's very clear, too, that we are not just followers. We're all leaders as well. You're all leaders. So I love this picture. Check this out. I've always appreciated this picture. Let me ask you this. Yeah, cute. Uh, but how many, uh, <laughs> sorry, how many leaders are in this picture? There's four. I love this picture. Why? Because they're all headed the same direction. They all, they're all going after the same thing. And that there's, there's four leaders in this picture. Why? Because you don't have to be at the front of the line to lead. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to go first. You just need to be one step in front of the person who's behind you. And far too many Christians take that for granted. You just need to have one. I'm just one step further than you so I can turn around and bring you along. And at the same way, I know who's in front of me because I'm intentional about whose life I'm imitating because we're all headed in that same direction. Third thing is this, follow the following the example of Jesus is about relying on his power and not your own. It'd be easy for you to say, I need to go find someone to imitate. I need to be someone worth imitating. I'm going to go do this. And you're going to realize real quick, you can't, you're going to fail because you don't have what it takes. You're not strong enough. You're not consistent enough. You're not able to overcome the enemy the way that you think you can. You can't do this in your own power. And you start realizing this is why so many Christians burn out. They're like, look, I'm trying so hard to imitate that. And I'm trying to be somebody worth imitating. I just find myself burned out. I'm tired of this and I'm out. And I think the reason that they come to that conclusion is because they're relying on their own abilities, their own power. Look, following Jesus is about leaning in him. This is why he said, I'm leaving, but I'm sending the helper. You have a helper when you are a Christian. When you've been baptized into Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You now have a power to access that's far greater than your own abilities. Man, do we take that for granted. This week, as I was studying, Ben was studying as well, which, hey, you should, you should find great comfort in knowing that the worship minister here uh, takes the text seriously. He sent me a quote 
uh, from Tim Keller, I just think illustrates this, this principle well. And this is what Keller says. The difference between knowing Christ and knowing the power of his resurrection, says Keller, is the difference between knowing a person and resembling a person. It's not about relationship, but about supernatural character growth. When Paul says, I want to know him, it means I want to be with him. But when he says, I want to know the power of his resurrection, it means I want to be just like him. Look at the deadness in your life. Look at the anger. How is it going to be turned into forgiveness? Look at the insecurity. How's that going to be turned into confidence? Look at the self-centeredness. How's that going to be turned into compassion and generosity? How? And the answer is the dead stuff gets taken over by the Spirit of God. When you decide to have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the power of the Holy Spirit comes into your life. It's the power of the resurrection. The same thing that raised Jesus from the dead is able to work in your life to help you have the power to follow him and build a life, a life that's worth following. So two questions real quick. We're, we're coming here to the home stretch. I got two questions for you that I just want you to wrestle with. These questions, please hear my heart. They're not intended for shock effect. They're not intended to get you. Man, I've wrestled with these texts over the last probably seven or eight years, these two questions that have helped me realign myself into the building process of my life. The first question that you might wrestle with is this. Am I a disciple of Jesus that's worth reproducing? Like, should God want people to imitate me? That's a hard question. I get it. And it's not to beat you down. It's just a man. Let's, let's make sure we're thinking critically about this. And the second question would be this. If everybody followed Jesus the way that I follow Jesus, would the church grow? I mean, if everyone's prayer life looked like your prayer life, what would happen? If everyone shared their faith and talked about Jesus the way that you do. If everyone displayed the fruit of the spirit the way that you do. What would that look like in the church? These things are important. Vitally important. What about the life that you're building? My son's a huge Golden State Warriors fan. I'm going to close out this way. Big time. He has been for many years. Loves watching Steph Curry. I like video games too because that's how that guy plays. It's just a video game, right? You're just shot after shot. It's crazy. He uses Christmas money to buy the NBA League Pass. I mean, he's all in. Like he loves watching this team. And every time we watch one of their games or you see their team represented, you always see a picture of the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, this picture here. You see this. You've seen this many times before, I'm sure. I find this bridge fascinating because if you do a little research on it, you come to find out this is actually built. This bridge, pretty bold, was built on a fault line. It's built on a fault line, which means it's really privy to earthquakes. That's fun. If you've seen the movie with Dwayne the Rock Johnson called San Andreas, right? That's the fault line this is built on, the San Andreas fault line. So you're like, why would anyone in their right mind build that? But let alone, why would anybody step foot on that bridge? Why would you even want to be around it? Earl Palmer writes this. By design, every part of the Golden Gate Bridge, the roadway, the railings, the cross beams, every single part of it is related to the vast cable system and two great towers that are deeply embedded into the rock foundation underneath the sea. So if an earthquake does come, this bridge can sway 22 feet in either direction without being compromised at all. In other words, he says, the Golden Gate Bridge is totally preoccupied with its foundation. And that's the secret to its strength. And the same thing should be said of us. We are totally preoccupied with our foundation. That's the secret to building that life and when we get to the end of our life, people will look at the house that's built and say, look what God did. So let me ask you again, how's your building? The 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we don't build this life alone. Man, I thank you because it would be one horrible house. Thank you that you've invited us into the building process, that we don't build a life for you, we build a life with you. And so our prayer, Father, as we go forth this week, would you have us wrestle where you need us to wrestle with things so that we can get into that building process and build with integrity and character and joy, displaying the fruits of the spirit that's in us, the power that we don't have on our own, that when we get to the end of this process, people would look at the life that we built and say, look what God did. That's our prayer, Father. And we offer it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.